not following Jesus, and Timothy had to know how to pastor a people to live everyday life, like, much like you guys live an everyday life. You don't um, kind of do all this stuff every day. You go work your job, or you're in school, or you're raising your kids, and you live around people who may not understand these things or don't believe these things. Um, and so it has everything to do with what does it mean to be Christians and following Jesus in a culture that doesn't. Uh, Ephesus was one of those. It helps us to learn that. Uh, but also uh, what Paul is doing is he, we saw that last week, we unpacked the first couple of verses, kind of understood why we would study a book like this. But um, chapter 3, verse 15 uh, says that the reason that Paul is writing this letter to this young pastor of this young church in this hard to reach city is that he might teach us, and God, through Paul, is teaching us today, even the church here at Tri-Cities and Johnson City, of how we ought to behave in the household of God. So that's where we're getting this title, the family of faith, is that one of the things that God says is true of us today as the church. If you're here and you're following Jesus, that means you've turned from your sin yourself, and you're saying, I want Jesus. Like, I, I believe what he did in his life and on the cross and the resurrection counts for me. He paid my debt. He took my place. And I'm now following Jesus as King and Lord over my life. He's mine. He's changed me. I'm his. And I live for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're here for that, you are a son or a daughter of God. It's, it's about a family relationship with God as our father. He's not some taskmaster giving you orders of what it means to live for him. It's more like a father with a son or a father with a daughter. And now, listen, that's not just about you and God. It's about a family of faith that we are now all a part of. That is much bigger than Tri-Cities Baptist Church. The church and the family of God extends all cultures, all generations, all over the world throughout human history. It's bigger than what's happening in this little room right now. But it does include this little room right now. That What it means to be part of a local church is to covenant together as a body of believers to say we are going to be a family. And that is just as much true for our African brothers and sisters across the globe, that they are family to us. But there's something about a local church where we are coveting together to say we are going to submit to God together as we submit to leadership, as we submit to one another. What it means to be a part of a church. That's more than just saying it's a building that I attend and come to in a location. It really is a family to belong to. And let's just be honest. We talked about this last week, but families are messy. Amen. Anybody's family not messy? Let me got a non-messy family. Okay, I didn't think so. Like all of our families are messy and there's no different in the family of faith. It's messy and we're going to hurt one another. And there's going to be the cousin across the aisle that you just don't like, you know, like it's just the weird uncle. Uh, who's the weird uncle in our church? Anybody want to point fingers? Um, we all have them, but nevertheless, we are a family. And we can't change that. We've got to understand what it means to how we ought to behave in the household of God or in the family of God. So this letter, all the Bible is, but especially this one is going to get an inside look at what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to move from just being a spectator to an event or casually kind of committed with some surface level friendships, but to truly live out what it means to be um, the family of faith together. So the way our lives are living together shows the gospel to one another, but also shows the gospel to the watching world as we live on mission in community together in this city and among every people group uh, of this world. This book matters, um, how we ought to behave in the household of God. Um, so if you're here and you say, man, how do I take the next step? Well, you're here, so that's a good thing. And you're listening to the sermon, that's a good thing. But our Discover Tri-Cities is next week. And if you don't know what Discover Tri-Cities is, uh, it's just a class that we do um, you know, roughly quarterly throughout the year um, where you'll hear from our church leadership. And we'll talk about the vision of our church, some core values that drive us as a church, but also our strategy of 
how we make disciples here and, and what it means for you to jump into that. That is next Sunday on September 11th, um, directly following this, our gathering. So we usually finish around 1230 or so. Um, and so we'll just go ahead and make our way in there. There'll be food provided for free. All right, so we'll pay for a meal for you. If you'll RSVP and let us know how much to, to provide for you. Um, and then we'll spend two hours together. So from one o'clock to three o'clock, uh, it'll be content dump overload, but it'll be an interaction together. It'll be good. So if you're here and you're saying, I've been on the fence for a while, or maybe this is your first time. You're like, man, I'd like to come to hear more about this church, um, please uh, sign up. You can do that on your Get Connected card. Just say, sign me up for the next Discover Trust Cities. If you've already RSVP'd, um, you're, you're good. But I really encourage you to do that. And maybe the next step for you is to say, okay, I'm going to listen to what the church is about, but I'm going to take the next step of membership. I'm going to not just be a face in the crowd, but I'm going to make myself known, and I'm going to commit here. Commit here. Um, so we'd love uh, to walk that process through with you, Okay. Um, but we're going to see some more of what he's going to unpack as we jump into chapter 1 this morning. Of Okay, what does it mean to be the family of faith? Our activity, how we behave, must flow from our identity, who we are. We are a family. We are this pillar of the truth that he talked about last week. We are the church of the living God. How do we live that out? How do we live that out? And so I want to start with a quote by A.W. Tozer. And I've probably used this a lot. You're going, he's really repeating that quote again. And yes, I'm repeating that quote again, all right? Um, it's so good, though, and I think it sets the tone for um, today. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, let's let that land for a second. So when I say God, <laughs> or when I say Jesus, how you process that, and what, come, what images come to your mind, or what character traits um, do you think of when you think of God? Um, and, and how much of that's true? How much of that's more bent on maybe your past to how you've seen people in the church act? Or how much of that's been maybe some from really bad teaching of growing up? Or how much of that's saying, you know what? Like I can make some assumptions because of what people have told me, but I don't really know. Because I don't really have a relationship with God. Like a lot of different people say a lot of different things about what God's like, and I don't even know what he's like, to be honest with you. So when I think about God, I have confusion because who is he? What does it mean to love him? And who, what's he like? And I love what Tozer says. He elevates this dilemma to pretty ultimate. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of important things about you. There's things about your story, your background, some issues that you may have with Christianity. If you're here, you're a doubter, a seeker, or a skeptic. There's some things from those of us that grew up in the church that have been walking with Jesus for a long time that we got issues because of how we've been in the church. Uh, has that, any of that skewed the way you see God? Is there, so here's another way of asking this. Is there any false belief among us? And, I mean, let's just go ahead and put the cards on the table. The answer is yes. Uh, all of our hearts are prone to say, there's mystery to this whole idea of knowing God. So we can't assume that we know everything there is to know about God. So we're always constantly learning and evolving and growing and understanding. But we also have to understand that our hearts lie to us. Can I get a witness? Anybody's heart to say, it tells me stuff all the time that's just not true. So our culture says, hey, follow your heart. And there's some truth to that. Be true to yourself and don't be something that you're not. But it also is some really bad advice in that because our hearts are prone um, to not believe the truths of God's word. We have to point our hearts. We have to guide our hearts. Uh, and our hearts are deceitful. And our hearts are, we grew up under seeing God through this little box. And we need to have our view of God exploded. Like, see him as he actually has revealed himself in creation, but also in his word, ultimately through his word. Um, is there any ways that you're seeing wrongly, believing wrongly? 
And so what he's going to do, we're going to see in verse 3, one of the first charges that this older pastor is giving his son in the faith, this young pastor. Okay, if you're going to know what it means to be the family of God, if you're going to live in this household of faith, this is the first thing, Tim. Timmy boy, come on up. You know, fireside chat with Pastor Paul here, okay? Notice what he says. That was awkward. Sorry I did that. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's like terrifying. That, don't, don't have that picture. Let's move on. Um, I digress. Verse 3. Let's get in the Word. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that, so Timothy, pastor these people. Why? You may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I don't know if that would be the first thing you would tell in advice of what it means to be the church. And that's probably not going to be the top of our list of, hey, you've got to make sure that there's going to be people in your church. And in this case, there were examples of people. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks of who those guys were. But they were coming in and they were teaching false doctrines. False teachers arise within the local church. We said that last week of there are threats against the church and our purity as a church and what it means to follow Jesus as the church from the outside. Let's make no mistake about that. We've got to make sure we don't aren't pulled away by every wind of doctrine in the world, and that's true. But listen, church, the problem in our lives, the threat we've got to be up against, is not against people out here, predominantly. It's in our own hearts and people in this room of believing wrong things. Doctrine is just another word for belief. And I know sometimes it's a generational thing. Some people lean other ways, but you might be on the person that says, doctrine really that's what we're talking about this morning, like belief about God. Like that just seems really stuffy and old-fashioned and dogmatic even. And uh, I just don't understand why we have to talk about doctrine. Doesn't doctrine divide? Why do we have to talk about what we believe all the time? Why don't we talk about what we do? And I think there's a disconnect there. Uh, number one, because we just, <laughs> there's some rebellion there, I think. But I think even more, if we separate what we believe from what we do, we don't understand what it really means to believe something. Because we're not talking about all the parts and all of the systematic theologies of what we believe, although those things are super important. Uh, our theology is super practical. That's why I'm a theology nerd. Like, I love theology. You guys know that by now. But, like, th- but theology is not just something like, Derek, my marriage is falling apart right now. Why are we talking about theology? Uh, I can barely pay the bills. Why are we talking about theology? I got problems. Let's talk about what I'm really going through right now in my life. I don't know what in the world I'm going to do after I graduate in a couple years. Let's talk about those things. This theology stuff has nothing to do with me. And what we're saying, no, no, no. Your belief about God is the most important thing about you. It, it, it informs the way you, you make any of those decisions, how you operate any of those things. And if there's any false doctrine in our hearts, if we can become the false teachers in the church, the church at Ephesus had false teachers. So is there anything that we're teaching falsely to our brothers and sisters? And then as there are false teachers that have arisen within our church. And so don't even just think this of like some one or two people like it was in this case of like, pushing up against Paul and teaching us this heresy, downright heresy. Those can definitely happen, and that's what our elders and what we do is to make sure we guard those things. But I want us to make it a little bit more close to home to say all of us are prone to this false teaching, to believing wrong things. So he says, hey, guys, listen, if you want to live as a family of faith, how you ought to behave is you've got to guard the gospel. Not that the gospel needs us to protect it. That's not what I mean at all. I'm talking about guard our hearts to believe the gospel. To say, if you get the gospel wrong, if I get the gospel wrong, if we get the gospel wrong together, and by gospel, um, mean the, the truth about Jesus, the announcement of who he is and what he's done to reconcile us to God and what he's doing in the world today and what he's going to come to do, that makes up the whole of Scripture. The whole book is one story about Jesus. If we get this wrong, 
then we'd get everything wrong. Like if there's any false belief in our heart that we're not speaking truth to and putting to death, like it's going to get us astray in everything else. It matters. That's why he says, out of the gate, Timothy, man, make sure nobody teaches something wrong. It's important. Guard the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is of first importance. It's again, just reiterating this whole point of this truth about Jesus is ultimate. It's everything. You stray on it, you stray on it all. And so that's one of the primary responsibilities of us as elders is the Bible gives us particularly a charge to guard against that, to, to teach and to correct and to admonish. And if there's unrepentant sin, to, to discipline uh, these things because our belief matters. What we believe about God matters. And so um, as we talk about this idea of the word being central, uh, I want you to go back to remember verse, chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, you're the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Again, hang with me. That's who you are. So we're going through asking, who am I? Like everybody in our culture and today and this generation, who am I? What's my identity? And you are a lot of things. But he says, listen, as the church together collectively and you as an individual as a part of it, one of your identity, God says, this is who you are. You hold up and support the truth of God's word. You hold it out. That if God's people ever stray from the word being central to everything we do, that's why our gatherings are shaped the way that they are. With, from start to finish, we pray. It's just saturated with the Bible. Because what else do we have? So if you're here and you're not a believer, like, listen, I hope you're not here to hear my opinions or my outlook on life or anybody else that would fill this pulpit. Uh, we're here to submit ourselves under the truth of God's word because God's word is ultimate. That's why we have study groups and life groups to live truth and learn truth together because it's all centered around truth. That's, why we, that's what evangelism is. That's why we have names on those walls out here to say we go and speak the truth in love to people that don't know the truth and that apart from Christ, they are under the wrath of God. And so we say, Jesus loves you. And here's why we know that, because it's true. That there is such thing as truth. And we are, we together, not just trusted, but the church is the pillar and the foundation of it. We hold it out. That is a high calling, isn't it? And again, I'm seeing some, like, I know you, we've grown up hearing these things, but I want it to like land that this is who you are. So what place does the word of God have in your life? How eager are you to come into spaces like this? Like, how seriously do you take life groups? Are you in one where you are investing the word and guarding against false belief in one another's hearts to say, hey, brother, sister, that's not right. The way you're heading down is not right, and you're heading down that way because you believe wrong things about God. Every behavior first is a heart problem, and so we speak the truth to one another. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be a part of the church. So how is that in your life? How, how are you doing with the word being central to everything you do? Would you describe your mind and your thought life to be saturated by it? Because if it really is this big of a deal, man, it's ultimate. And what it means to be the word to be central, it means it's a defensive posture and it's an offensive posture. So he's writing, say, hey, guard against false belief. How do we know false belief? By knowing true belief. That's how they understand counterfeits, right? Like they know the, the real thing so well that when anything fake comes across the counters, they know that's not true. So we got to know the word and be a part of the word and be a creature of the word to defend our hearts and the hearts of other people to say, I'm not going to believe wrong things. I'm going to teach my heart what's right, what's true. It's defensive, but it's also offensive. That all this talk about defending the gospel and 
believing sound doctrine and teaching against false teachers and all that stuff. It's heavy stuff, but it's all throughout the New Testament, so you can't ignore it. Uh, it's not just defensive. It's also offensive. That what God tells us today is not just, hey, just be the militant people that wants to argue all the time and just like the Holy Spirit police, you know, going through. Like, that wasn't theologically accurate. Like, that's not what we're talking about. Like, don't be that guy, please. Uh, okay, that's not what we mean by saying preach the gospel to yourself and preach the gospel to one another. We're saying, do you have a, a vision of what God is calling us into? One of the reasons we guard against the falsehood is because of the beauty of the real thing. It's such a danger because if we get the gospel wrong, yeah, it's wrong and it's dangerous, but like you're missing out on the beauty of who Jesus is. That if our hearts are believing the gospel wrongly, if we're not understanding the fullness of the God's word, you're missing something in the depths of your walk with Jesus that he wants to invite you into. And that's the beauty of part of being a part of a local church. If you're not covenant here, if you're not in community here, you're on your own in that fight. That's scary. When we say join the church and join a life group and be involved and get here and get here early so we're here for the litter, come to a study group, we're not doing that saying be busy, be legalistic. We're saying we need each other. Amen? Like I need people to say, speak into my life. Help me. My heart is prone to believe wrong things. And so here's a sketch of this false doctrine that we'll unpack as we go through. But here's some of the things that were going on in this church at Ephesus. Verse 4 of chapter 1, there were myths and genealogies that they were like adding to God's word. They were taking things that were actually here and adding to it. And Paul's like, no, can't do that. That's wrong. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19, this false doctrine led to this lifestyle of immorality. They didn't take holiness seriously. That's an issue in the church today. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 2, there was a seared conscience that because they believed the wrong things, they no longer had any kind of litmus test to say, man, that's not right. After a while, after you believe wrong things, it leads you into that really dangerous place. Then verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, they added to God's law. They were false teachers rising in the church that says, hey, God says don't be married. God says don't eat certain foods. And God didn't say that. They were building fences around the law, and they were adding to God's word. There's a danger in the church today to add to God's word, to take things away, but to say things that God never said, and to say them as authoritative. Chapter 6, verse 4, they craved controversy. And I think that's true. That's a good idea. Are we believing falsely in our churches today? Is to say, are we just wanting to argue with one another all the time? I think it's some reason why we push up against doctrine is because usually people that care about doctrine just want to argue their side. And they don't care about the other. And you see that they were craving controversy. And then verse 5 of chapter 6, that they were misusing money. That they were materialistic and false teachers. And some of the issues, maybe you're here and you're an unbeliever and you're like, that's what I hate about the church is I think they're, they're just fake and they're in it for themselves and paul's addressing this and say that's not the way it's supposed to be and then verse chapter 4 verse 1 kind of a summary of all of it he says that all this false doctrine is the teaching of demons that's heavy language paul he's like all these guys that are rising up and saying wrong things like it is from the mouth of the enemy Uh, it's not from god and so all that to say this statement um and you've heard me say similar things before but it's true Every fruit of rebellion in our lives stems from the root of unbelief. So we're going to see that throughout 1 Timothy. Uh, They're getting all this stuff wrong. They're misusing money, misusing morality, all this stuff. But it flows out of they believe wrongly. And when they started to believe wrongly, then it led them into all these concerns and these cares of life. uh, That that were these sins, rather, of life. 
For every fruit of rebellion stems from the root of unbelief. So if you're here and you see that your life isn't lining up with whatever God has told you, the answer, and I say this every time, remember, the answer is not to attack the behavior. Because it's like mowing over weeds, they're going to come back. What if the reason you're believing, you're saying those things and doing those things and can't quite get over that sin? Anybody struggling with sin that you've been fighting for years? Raise your hand. Say, I've still struggled with the same daggone sin. Can I say that up here? Saying that, that's probably something I've struggled with up here too. Like, uh, I'm still struggling after I've been fighting it forever. Why? Part of it is, well, we're always sinful and we're always going. But what if there's a reason for the behavior? That if we keep saying, okay, stop doing that, start doing this, and if I just add more Bible reading, then maybe that'll balance out. And what if it's not about that at all? Like, yeah, let's do those things. Let's stop the behavior, but let's go down deeper. And maybe the fruit up on the tree of our lives is flowing from the roots that go down deep that we can't see. So ask yourself the question, how am I believing wrongly? And what would it look like to believe right that would actually fix the fruit and change the fruit producing in my life? Like, I want to get the gospel right and know how to preach the gospel to myself in such a way that I actually change. Like, really, really change. I'm looking out, and there's some people that are tired. I don't feel like I need to say this. Just tired of this whole religious game. I've tried this before. It doesn't work. And what you just need to hear is, yeah, it's hard, and it's always a struggle, and it'll constantly be a struggle. And I think the farther along we get, the more we realize how bad we are. That's part of sanctification, part of becoming like Jesus. But maybe, just maybe, we're trying to fix internal problems externally. That if the problems are heart, the problems what we believe, and we're fixing it with all the other stuff, it's not going to work. You see that lived out here in 1 Timothy. And that's why he says, guard what you believe. Don't let anybody teach false um, doctrine. So here's some of the results from straying from the gospel. Let's get back in the text. Um, the first result is straying from the gospel causes us to major in the minors. First Timothy 1 verse 4. He says, nor, don't teach false doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Verse 6 says, certain persons by swerving from these, we'll talk about these in a second, but having wandered away into vain discussions. Kind of the same idea. He says, listen, when you get the gospel wrong, when you start to stray from right belief and teach the wrong things, what's going to happen is you're going to give yourself to stuff that's not true, myths, endless genealogies, but it's going to promote speculation. That word speculation literally means idle disputes. You're just going to start talking about stuff that doesn't matter. You're going to major in all these things, and is this right? And it's straying you away from what's ultimate. And it's from a, from a place. A vain discussion is another way of saying it. It's just empty. You major in things that are minor. That's not what God has called us to do. Here's another result of straying from the gospel. It causes us to be full of ourselves and empty of understanding. <laughs> full of ourselves and empty of understanding. So Derek, where are you getting that? Well, verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding, there's, it is, either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Because they're believing the wrong thing, kind of a, a litmus test of that, how you know that's you, is that you're so arrogant. You have this confidence, this is the truth. And Paul says, they're making these arrogant claims, and they don't know what they're talking about. That's basically what Paul says. That's Derek translation there. It's the Derek standard version. Um, they don't know what they're talking about. They're making, um, without understanding and confident assertions, they're, they're full of themselves, but they're empty of any true knowledge. 
You know, so again, don't just point fingers at somebody that you know from back in the church you grew up in or this person down the street or that church over there or the person sitting next to you. Don't point fingers. But this is true of our hearts, too. Uh, making confident assertions of things we just don't know. Pride. It's okay. That's what happens when we stray, Paul says. They're just talking about stuff that doesn't matter, causing disunity in the church. And they're so arrogant, so prideful, and they're lacking this gospel humility of any kind of thing that's true. So the only remedy from straying from that, so okay, I don't want my heart, Derek, to stray. I need the Lord to be my shepherd like we were talking about earlier. How do I do that? Well, it sounds really simplistic, but return to the gospel. Is it really, it's that, yeah. So if you don't want to stray from the gospel, keep the gospel front and center. Um, one of the, my favorite pastors from out in the Northwest, his name is Jeff Vanderstelt. He says like this, have, are we gospel fluent? Meaning, are we fluent in the language of the gospel, to really understand who Jesus is. And not just the bullet points that where you can pass it on a quiz. That's not what I mean. I mean to understand the gospel so much, to return to the truth of God's word in such a way that it begins to get down into the root system of our beliefs to where we can actually change. Do you know how to apply the gospel? Are you fluent in it? Can you speak the gospel when somebody's dealing with depression? What do you say? Is it just some trite, get better and... I'm sorry, or is there anything that the gospel says that? What do you do when somebody's riddled in unrepentant, habitual sin? What do you say to that? Hey, stop it. God doesn't like that. Cut it out. Or like, how does the gospel apply to that? Because see, then it gets to a transformation of heart. And we'd love to explore that more with you. If that's provocative to you and you're here and you're not a believer, I'd love to talk more um, about that. But Bob Coughlin, the pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, he says it like this. We worship our way into sin, and worship is the only way out. <laughs> so anytime there's a sin in our lives that we have, we're struggling with over here, the root of it is we're worshiping the wrong stuff. We got our eyes off the gospel, off of Jesus, off the glory of God, and we got it on to something else. That's what's causing the, the wreck of our lives. So if your sin is ultimately something that's a false belief and a worship problem, the only way you're getting out of that junk is to worship is to get your eyes off yourself, off of the advice, off of all the wrong stuff, and get your eyes back on Jesus and submit in community to him. So why? Why is the gospel ultimate? Two reasons. Because of what it is. Notice in verse 4, the last part of that. He says, rather than the stewardship from God, that is by faith. So he says, hey, don't have these false doctrines. Don't get into all this weird, vain discussion. But instead, give yourself to the stewardship from God. He says that's what the gospel is, that the gospel has been handed down to us, like given to us by God. It's his message. And he says, I'm giving it to you. So why are we devoting ourselves to it? Why is it ultimate? Because it's, it's from God. This is not just man's opinion. We're talking about in our study group this morning of why we can confidently believe the Bible. Historically, why these documents are reliable, but it testifies that it's God's word. And do we know that we have what the authors originally intended and we and we absolutely do and it's given to us from him the gospel writer says hey listen i'm not writing my own opinion i'm writing because the holy spirit is telling me what to write and this is from god to you it's a stewardship from god that is by faith it takes faith to believe then first timothy 1 verse 11 at the end of our text today he says in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed god with which i've been entrusted there's that same idea of entrusted, of a stewardship, of a precious treasure. But he says it's the gospel, literally the good news. It's the announcement of what? That God is awesome. 
that we guard the gospel because of what it is. That the gospel is absolutely glorious. Because the gospel is how we see the height of our sin and our transgression and the beauty and the mystery and the grace and the love of God to come and pursue us and to fix it and to change it so we can be with Him. And not just with us, but with all of creation. It is absolutely breathtaking. It's the best story in the world because it's about Him. The gospel's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about Him and what He has done. And it's absolutely breathtaking. It's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So again, I think we have such a small view of God that we have grown stale to the gospel. You say, no, we ain't grown stale to the gospel, Derek. We talk about it all the time. We just got excited singing in Christ alone, you know? Like, But what about Tuesday morning? Does the gospel like just become like, okay, Derek, I know Jesus died for my sins. He rose again. Got it. Gospel-centered. We're gospel-centered. We say the gospel all the time, so we're gospel-centered. That's not what it means to be gospel-centered. As we talk about Jesus all the time, like it helps, but... Like, it's more than that. That it means the gospel informs everything because it's the glory of the blessed God. It's, it's Him. God is the gospel. See that? Like, it's not about something that we get from Him. The gospel is not just what He did for us or like, no, the, the good news is Him. Like, you can be restored to Him. Why wouldn't you want Him? Like, because I don't think we see Him um, as beautiful. So the gospel is ultimate because of what it is. But it's also ultimate because of what it does. Let's read verses 8 through 11. Uh, and we're kind of closing. All right. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, and for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers. Notice these are kind of reminiscent of the Ten Commandments here. He's given us this list of Here's who you are apart from Jesus. Um, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then he tags on what we just saw. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here's what was happening. These false teachers, and here's what's true in our hearts today. You tracking with me? Is that they were using the Bible. So again, they were making confident assertions without knowledge. And they were using the Bible and the law of God to say, Here's how you should be. Here's how it was. And Paul says, listen, you're taking it and jacking it up. Like, that's not good. Like, don't do that. But so he says, I've got to kind of defend myself a little bit here. I'm not saying because they're misusing the law, you just need to give up the law. No, because the law matters. He says, verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We're going to talk about what that means in just a second. But here's the point. They were taking true things and swerving, the Bible says here, swerving from them. It's like having a car wreck. Like you're driving down the road going too fast and you're just careless and reckless because you're just going to fool yourself and something comes out in front of you and you don't have the time to respond and you just swerve into anything. And it's reckless. It's dangerous. That's the word he uses for what it means to get the gospel wrong. And so here's some ways that we swerve from the gospel today. Okay? Here's some ways that we... See, so what in the world is this seminary class? Okay, it's okay. Don't, don't let the bullet points freak you out and the, the, the... Yeah, whatever. Don't track with me. Um, therapeutic. Here's a false gospel that I think the church, maybe here, but the church throughout generations has gotten wrong. Uh, Seeing the gospel only through this lens of sin is just a failure to reach our potential. That's all it is. Like we just aren't all that we could be and Christ and the church is just a means of self-fulfillment. So come to Jesus, be a part of the church to be a better you. And again, there's some truth there. Like sin isn't reaching our potential, but it's much more than that. 
So again, all of these are going to have some elements of, of, yeah, this is right, but it's not holistic and it's an oversteer and it's dangerous when you just have one little slice of the beautiful uh, diamond that is the gospel. So therapeutic, that it's all about me and my fulfillment. All my sin is, is I'm just not being all, all that I could be. That's dangerous. Then judgmentless. Here's this gospel. is Restoration is more about God's goodness than judgment of evil. So it's not about Jesus on the cross. He's defeating our enemies. But it's missing out on that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's taking our place, absorbing the wrath of God instead of you, instead of us. So yes, it's absolutely he defeats our enemies. But it's much more than that. It's, it removes any kind of wrath, any kind of judgment of God. And the result of that is because we don't believe God to judge, we begin to say we're not going to judge anybody. So the lines of church and culture begin to get blurry. And we lose our witness and we're not distinct. We're not that church of the living God that's called out. And we begin to not be in the world and engage and love our culture. We just begin to become like them because we don't want to judge because we don't believe God judges. And then moralistic. Sin is seen as individual sins. It's like, I'm not doing, I'm doing the bad things. I'm not doing the right things. And Jesus, all he does is provides a way for us to exercise our willpower and be better. So you're, you know, pretty good. Sin's just about your behavior over here. It doesn't believe worship stuff. It's just about what you do. And Jesus died for you to help you be a better person. That's the moralistic gospel. I mean, is this ringing any bells? Like, have we heard things like this growing up and around the church? Like, this is real life. This is our culture today. Um, individualistic. This means that God's story only applies to my story. It's all about me. And Jesus changes individuals. And the church is about meeting my needs. But what the, the air of that is, is that, yes, Jesus saves individuals, but he's also restoring the entire universe. Like it's, he's restoring all of creation, not just individual people. And the church, because of that, doesn't engage politically. They don't engage culturally. They don't engage in anything that's real because we're distinct. We're separate. A couple more. Uh, the activist gospel is a gospel of the kingdom that says, I see the church as just a bunch of, see, sin is just social problems. And what the church is supposed to do is just meet the needs and like love the poor and uh, speak out against injustices in our communities and seek holistic community transformation and again we are all for that right like it's good let's do more of that church but it's not all that the gospel is the gospel is not just a social activism they go do good things because that's what the gospel implies is what will happen if we are in the gospel but it's not the gospel it's not the focus of the church exclusively and then lastly is the churchless i think it's huge in our generation is the gospel is very much about me and my relationship with Jesus, but I don't need any kind of community of faith at all. Because God is forming in us. That's part of what the gospel is, is that he's making a people for himself from every people group of this world to worship his name and to live for his glory. And to separate yourself from that story is to miss it. It's to miss it. And so these are just some ways that we stray from the gospel today. And they're subtle. I think they were subtle. Maybe they were explicit here. I mean, because he's laying them out and but again, the people were believing them because they had a little bit of something to it. And we can't leave the gospel of the story of what he's doing to create the world and restore what's broken fully. But also individuals, he makes us new and he's making an us. And the kingdom of God is bigger than the, even the church. And about individual people living that way, it's important. We can't lose it. So that's why he says, listen, the law is good. Again, the law is even a part of the gospel. That is not good. The word of God, it's, it is absolutely good. The law is good. It confronts the way that we tend to think about submission and authority 
is resistant toward grace. Here's what I mean. Paul says, listen, don't buy the lie that if we're going to be about love and grace, that we don't need all this law, doctrine, true stuff. He said, don't buy that lie because the law is good. Don't leave it. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. He said, I'm not trying to get away with it. I'm, I'm making it happen because the law is actually a, a very, very good thing. But he says, if one uses it lawfully. It's only good if, unless you distort it and twist it. If you distort it and twist it, it's going to make us miss uh, the gospel. That's where 9 and 10, he gives all of these, ex- these expressions of how the gospel uh, plays itself out. And we're going to end with this. Here's the reasons and the purposes of the law. We're going to take the Lord's Supper uh, together. But I want us to remind ourselves of this gospel that we're going to take a picture of as we come to the table together as a family of faith um, this morning to believe the right things again um, together. But um, here's some of the, the purposes of the law that we don't miss why God, the hard part of the gospel, we love the part of like Jesus loves you, it's grace. But why do we need all of this doctrine stuff, the other side of the coin? Well, here's some reasons. Here's what the law does. First, the law reveals to us the heart and the nature of God. So I want you to let this sit on us today. When we hear thou shalt or thou shalt not, and do this, be this, how you ought to behave in the house of God, the law. Um, it's showing us the character of God. He doesn't give any commands. It's just separate out there. Like, I'm just going to make their lives miserable and tell them all this stuff to do. That is not what God's doing. God is saying, I'm, it's flowing from my character. It's who I am. And I love you, and I want you to be with me. So therefore, anything that's apart from this is going to miss me. So the law shows us, here's what God is like. Here's what it means to be with him. It's a good thing. It, it gets behavior. But when it sets boundaries, though, it says if you step outside of the boundary, you're outside of the will and the character and the nature of God. I mean, my goodness, my little boy doesn't listen to anything. And he started crawling now, and it's terrible. We're like, oh, he's crawling. And now he's crawling. Like, stop crawling, dude. Like, it's, he's everywhere. There's these little bar stools that we have in our, in our house, and he's not supposed to touch them because he loves to touch those things. He, like, grabs them, pulls on them. And, like, when I pull him away from those, it's like, Dad, you are a terrible human being. Why are you trying to be a killjoy right now? Like, and he's hitting, squalling. And I'm like, son, I told you not to touch the stools. And he goes over there, and he's, like, almost like I'm keeping him from something that is just awesome. Like, Dad, what's up with these stools, man? Like, I'm going to keep coming back to figure it out. And why do I don't I want him to touch the stool? Because if he pulls it over on him, he's going to knock him out or whatever else it is. And, like, it's not, it's not good for him. So I say, don't touch the stool. But he doesn't believe that my heart is for his good. So he keeps going back to the stool. I'm like, oh, we're going to throw those things away. That can drive me crazy. Um, But I think that's true of us. Is that we we don't see it as an impeding on our freedom. We don't want to trust that when God tells us, no, believe this, don't believe that, that it's for our good. It is for our good. There's another example of kids on a playground that's right next to an interstate. And they told the kids, don't go near the interstate, right? Because that's bad. Checking with me? It's dangerous. Um, don't let kids play on interstates, guys. Like, it's not good. Um, seriously, come work with me here. We're going to start over here. Um, but then but what they noticed is the kids were all the way over. So let's say interstate's over there. They're all the way over here playing. They didn't even get close. There's this huge field that they didn't play in because they were so afraid of getting near the cars. But then the owners of the school put a fence right along the edge of the interstate. And so then they changed it and said, hey, you can go right up to the fence. Just don't go over the fence. Don't go out of the gate, out on the other side of the fence. And what they found was the kids moved out of this one area they were congregating in because they were so fearful. And they went all the way up into next to the fence because they knew it was safe. 
And so, so here's the point. The boundary actually gave them more freedom. They were so stuck over there because they were so afraid. Like, man, we didn't get near that. But when there was a boundary set, when it wasn't just danger, it was, no, 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 you can come up here, but just don't go past this. It actually allowed them to open up this whole huge field for them to play Army, Navy, or whatever it is, because the boundary set them free. It didn't keep them from anything. It kept them from harm and actually set them into a greater life. What if God's law is like that? When he says, believe this, don't believe that, he has your best at heart. He's not saying, live a terrible life. He's saying, I am what you need. Don't cross this because when you do, it's leading to your destruction. But what happens? We keep reaching for the stool, don't we? Every time. Because we don't believe that God's enough. We don't believe that his standard is enough. And so we've broken God's law over and over and over again. And it reveals to us our heart. That's what nine and 10, verse 9 and 10 says. Here's what it's all going to look like when you do it. Because it's just showing you what's going to be true of you. You're breaking God's law because you don't want God. We're rebels. Our sin is against him. But then here's what the law does. It shows us about Christ. The point of the law, Galatians says, was to say, to show us Jesus. God knew you couldn't keep it. He says, hey, it's, it's a good law. It's a good standard. It's about me. Don't cross it. But you're going to cross it, and you did cross it. And God had every right to punish us. Every right. But here's what he did. He said, I'm going to send myself to keep the law where you couldn't keep it. And then I am going to die as a lawbreaker. He wasn't a lawbreaker. He kept it perfectly. He said, I'm going to die as a guilty sinner so that if you put faith in Jesus, you can no longer have to be say guilty with all the wrath of breaking the law, but instead you can say, I'm in Christ and he kept the law for me. And if I'm in him, I have been declared righteous. Isn't that good? We keep going to the stool, and Jesus says, okay, you know what? Instead of punishing you, I am going to take the punishment. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to absorb the wrath, the, the wrath of we rebelled against the good law that God had given us. It's so beautiful, and I, I just want to read these two quotes from these old dead guys to you as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, okay? Um, Spurgeon said this, the law is the hammer that crushes the self-righteous of humanity. The self-righteousness of humanity. The law is the hammer. It shows you if you think that you don't need God, that I'm just a pretty good person, just take a good look at the law of what he demands from you. He doesn't say, are you better than this person over here? He says, how are you in comparison to me? And you've broken against that, and I have every right to punish you. It says there's no pride left. I'm a lawbreaker. But then... Lewis says this, yes, Lewis, no one knows he is bad until he has tried very hard to be good. So when we see the law, it just crushes us and goes, man, we're not what we thought we are. And then the irony of in the church, here's what we do. All right, I got to start doing more law. I got to use the thing that condemned me to try to make me righteous. And C.S. Lewis says, if you really want to know how bad you are, just try for a little bit to not be bad. And you'll realize how bad you really are. The law just shows us our need for Jesus. And the gospel says, Lift your eyes off yourself, repent of your sin, and see that Jesus, his body was broken for you, and his blood was shed for you. You're the lawbreaker. He's the lawkeeper. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen? It's the gospel. It's, the law is good if we use it right. Don't let your heart believe wrong things about him. So let's bow and prepare our hearts to take 
uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. just want to invite us into um, this space because we skipped verse 5. Verse 5 says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith because that's only possible by the gospel. That He says, don't use the law wrongfully, but here's what the law is about. Jesus says, they ask him to sum up the law of what God commands from us. He says, you know what it is? Love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you're doing those two things, you're going to do what God wants you to do. That's good doctrine, <laughs> is to love Jesus and to love one another. Um, when we begin to not love God, we begin to break every other law. When we begin to not love our neighbor, we begin to break every other law. He says, so what you need to do is love. And that's why Timothy, Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, guard against false doctrine, but you know the aim of this, the bullseye in the middle of all of this is love. It's that agape love. It's I am loved by the Father and I extend that love to my brothers and sisters. Um, so ask yourself the question, am I loving? Do I really love God? Not am I religious, but do I love Him? And if you're here and you've never uh, come to a place where you've repented of your sin and put faith in Jesus, today's the day. And we ask that you not take the Lord's Supper. It's reserved for people who have put faith in Christ. But we offer you Jesus, like, see him, know him. And if you have more questions, we'd love to hang out and talk with you after uh, this. But right now, in your seat, like, call out to him. God, save me. If you've done that, we'd love to hear about it and to help you to know what your next step is and to do baptism and celebrate that life change. Um, if you're here and you pray your sin Christ this morning, like, come to the table and take the Lord's Supper for the first time as a born-again child of God. But for the rest of us that are here, we do know Jesus. We take the Lord's Supper. I just invite you to remember that you're law-breaking. We're going to sing this song as we're coming to the table. It's called Not In Me. It's a confession that I didn't keep the law. I am just a rebel through and through. But Jesus is my law keeper. He did it for me. He took my place. And I'm in Him. And He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. So when you're looking down at that bread that symbolizes His body, you're looking down at that cup that symbolizes His blood, remember the gospel. Teach yourself what's true. He took my place because He loves me. So the aim of our charge now is love. Love Him back. And let this gift that God's given us in the Lord's Supper be something that stirs your heart toward those things. This fountain filled with blood that would cleanse us from our guilty stains. But it's not in us. So we remember the gospel. We reflect on that. We confess our sin. We praise Jesus for who He is. And we rest that Jesus likes us. So what I invite you to do now is as you're preparing your heart on the way to the table, come up. There's two tables in the back, two in the front. Uh, come during this song. So get up right now, and let's come to the table and come back to your seat and just wait for just a moment. Uh, and I'll come back up, and we'll take the bread and the juice together as a faith family. But let's sing this together as we're making lines to the table, and let this be our prayer and confession. We'll come back and take uh, 